Would you continue and pray with me for just a moment as we open your word, Lord? We would invite your Holy Spirit to be our teacher this morning. We would ask God that you would bring about anything that needs to be brought about. That our lives would be transformed. You wouldn't just allow us to have more information in our head, but have a change in our, our hearts. We pray that that would be so. God, you know each of us, we're your, we're your children and even those who aren't who might be here this morning. So we commit this time to you in your son's name. Amen. Well, we're on our, uh, in the Ten Commandments, we are on number seven. Exodus 20, verse 14. Let's see it. You shall not commit adultery. What do you think? Everyone's going, what's he going to say? If you're a child here, I, we'll figure that out in some go. If you're a child here, let me give you a clue a little bit what we're talking about this morning. Because God's word's for you too. If, if a, 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 a husband has a wife, but he's also got a girlfriend, usually secret. See, that's, that's adultery. If a wife has a husband, but he's, she's also got a boyfriend secretly someplace, that's adultery. So I'll let you know a little bit of where we're at with this. This one is a very interesting command because my guess is this. And you know, challenge me in your heart if you desire. But my, my guess is that of all the Ten Commandments, this is going to be the one that the United States of America, Americans, 21st century, maybe everyone in the world, has the most trouble with. You know, if we were to, to ask Americans and go through the list and we, we say, okay, listen, Americans, should we re- honor our mother and father? I'm guessing that most Americans would say, yeah, you know, there's some parents, but yeah, generally speaking, yeah. And should we murder anybody? I'm guessing most Americans would say, no, no, we probably shouldn't murder people. Well, how about uh, bearing false witness? Should we, should we lie and gossip about other people? Most folk would say, no, we probably shouldn't do that one. Should we steal? No, we shouldn't steal. Even should we covet? I'm guessing some, some sociological article would be, be quoted as far as, as being obsessed with things that belong to other people is not good for you. So, no, we probably shouldn't covet. But should we commit adultery? Yeah, I'm guessing there's going to be some hesitation on that one. And folk will say, and this is the the discussion, you know, that one's not like the rest of them. Because, you know, with murder, you've got an innocent victim. You've got somebody who doesn't want to be murdered, but they're murdered. Uh, Someone who doesn't want to be stolen from, but they're stolen from. Someone who doesn't want to be lied about, but they're lied about. Innocent victims. But here, here, here you've got two consenting adults. Who, who have agreed to this. And so it's a little bit different. It's just a little bit different. And you might hear the argumentation go, well, hang on. I got married when I was younger. And I was foolish and made some decisions. And, I don't, and maybe the person was, was different. But see, they've changed. And the love has grown cold. And we don't like each other. And they're, they're mean and they're burly and all these wonderful things. Uh, but then I met somebody. See, who's, who's fantastic, and we're soulmates, and, and, and you mean to tell me that I, I can't enjoy that relationship? Instead, I have to stay over here chained to this relationship? Is that what you think God is saying? God gets a, a bad name on this one, doesn't he, in this culture, in this society? And so what we want to do th- this, this morning is, is unpack this command just a little bit further, I think it's going to be helpful as we stop and we recognize why this one was given. Because we're going to remember, we're going to look at their world. And then we're going to try to bring the principle over into our world today, how it relates to us. And one of the reasons why this command was given originally was to protect these guys from themselves. 
protect us from ourselves. There was no nuclear families. Basically, you lived in a very extended family. And the way it would work is when my, my daughter was married off, she would go to her uh, husband's clan, kind of a commune. And she would go there. Now, my boys, and I probably had a lot of them, when they got married, they brought their wives in to our clan. And we maybe didn't all live under one roof. Many of us probably did. But, but there was a commune. We needed it for safety. We needed to protect each other, those kind of things. And I might, might, might have uncles and aunts living with me. And I might have nephews and their wives living with me. There might be a lot of gals. Now, when you think about this as well, that my marriage probably was arranged. I didn't have a whole lot of choice in who I married. And I've got a brother not too, too terribly far from me in age. And I, actually, in all honesty, I like his wife better. And as we're hanging out with the sheep, and as we're hanging out in the fields, and as we're hanging out doing stuff, I, you know, I get to talk with her a little bit. You know, she's fun, and she's got a great personality, and she's humorous, and not at all like the one I got married to. And you can see where there could be some problems. And we, we recognize what God always knew, that, that close physical proximity often, often, equals emotional intimacy, and that often equals physical intimacy. What this is is kind of a bill of rights. It's it's saying that that husbands, you have a right to your wife without worrying about some other derelict person trying to woo her and steal her and and gain her affection. And gals, you've got a right to your husband without worrying about some other gal batting her eyes at his hormones, trying to get into his imagination. You've got a right there. Another reason why this, this command was given was to protect them from their culture. Because, see, God knows they've gone their way to Canaan. And in Canaan, there's lots of religions. And most of the religions in Canaan uh, include a cultic prostitution uh, ring, as it were. And, and this, this makes sense in kind of a twisted way. It's not that these guys were all perverts necessarily. But, but uh, it was important to them that their, that their livestock uh, birth properly. It was important to them that the crops came up. It was important to them that their children were born uh, correctly. And they had lots of them. It was very important. And they believed that gods were responsible for that. And so when you entered into the act that brought life about, you were honoring these gods. And so God knows that his people are going into this land where sex is abused on a regular basis when they don't understand it. They've got it all mixed up. And he's telling these guys, listen, you're going to this place where they really misuse this. And so I just want you to know, no adultery. You know, probably the primary reason, though, I believe why this is, is uh, taboo, this is all important reasons. Ephesians 5 lets us know that the relationship between a husband and his wife is really a picture to this world of Christ and the church. Throughout the Old Testament, God is called the groom and Israel, his people, is called the bride. Matter of fact, very, very interesting, this word adultery, God uses this word all the time in the Old Testament. Ezekiel, Hosea, to, to depict his people who have left him. He calls that adultery. Oh, they might still go to temple and they still read the Torah and all those wonderful things. But in their heart, so they found another God. Somebody who, who just provides for them a little bit more. Someone who can fulfill their needs better than Yahweh can. Yahweh perhaps is boring. He's got some rules and all those kind of things. But there's these other gods, see. And God knows what's going on in their heart. And he calls that adultery. So when, in fact, adultery is entered into, it destroys the testimony to this world of God's love for his people. 
That's probably the primary reason. Well, he knows that you and I, just like the ancient Israelites, are going into a world, going into a culture where they misuse sex all the time. And we are bombarded, right? Aren't we? I mean, um, there's a big culture shift actually between Appleton and Erie. But this is one thing where we're the same. Uh, Marketers are in both places. And it doesn't matter where you go. We are being bombarded between arts and music and magazines and television and video. Everywhere we're being bombarded to understand the, the way Canaan, the way the pagans understand sex. God's got this one wrong. This is the way you need to be. And so we need to, to look at this text a little bit closer. Or look, we're going to look at probably the most famous sin in the Bible. Other than Eve's sin, you're aware of it. It's the sin of David and Bathsheba. So turn with me in your Bibles to 2 Samuel 11. And we're going to look at, at this text as a case study. And how you cannot fall into this. 2 Samuel 11. The most famous sin, maybe even more famous than Eve's. 2 Samuel 11. It says, In the spring, at the time when kings go off to war, David sent Joab out with the king's men and the whole Israelite army. They destroyed the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah, but David remained in Jerusalem. One evening, David got up from his bed and walked around on the roof of the palace. From the roof, he saw a woman bathing. The woman was very beautiful, and David sent someone to find out about her. The man said, Isn't this Bathsheba, the daughter of Iliam, and the wife of Uriah the Hittite? Then David sent messengers to get her. She came to him, and he slept with her. Now, before we go any further with this, we're going to unpack this this chapter just a little bit. Uh, further, But before we go any further, there is a principle that you and I have absolutely got to embrace on this one. Y'all, if we don't, if we don't embrace this principle, then this is just going to be head knowledge. We're basically, we're wasting our time this morning. And here's the principle. All can fall. Got it? Will you say that with me? All can fall. Now, that all doesn't just include the person next to you. It includes you, right? And David fell. Solomon fell. Why is this guy in the world? I used to keep in my, my Bible a running list. And I had uh, about 18 names on it last I checked. Of minister friends of mine, a couple of celebrity Christians, but minister friends of mine mostly, who fell morally. Several pastors' wives on that list. Uh, a theology professor from Moody on that list. One of my former mentors on that list. An author on that list. Missionary on that list. Uh, Christian, uh, a couple of Christian uh, recording artists on, on that list. All can fall. And don't think that you can't. And this is important for us because if we look at this text in kind of a super pious uh, perspective, uh, we're going we're gonna to miss this whole thing. If we're thinking this doesn't relate to me, somehow I escape this. Here's a good verse for you. 1 Corinthians 10, 12. It says, so, if you think you're standing firm, be careful, be careful, so that you don't fall. All can fall. And I recognize as we get into this, that for some of y'all, this is a painful subject. I, I'm, I'm, I'm very aware, I wrestled with that uh, this week, because you've been down this road. Maybe you were dragged down this road. Maybe you walked down it of your own volition. But this is, can be painful. Now listen, let me just mention this. If in fact someone could have said something on the front end of that journey that would have precluded that journey from you, 
Would not you have wanted that to be said? That's part of our our goal this morning. So as we, we unpack this text, I think we can find some principles to keep you and I uh, in, in greater compliance with number seven. So Second Samuel 11, let's start right in with verse 1. It says, In the spring, at the time when the kings go off to war, David sent Joab out with the king's men and the whole Israelite army. They destroyed the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah, but David remained in Jerusalem. They fought. Believe it or not, there was a time for warfare. It was in the spring. The guys needed to be out in the fields at harvest time. Uh, The winter rains made the primitive roads pretty impassable. There was no fodder for their four-legged Humvees and supply trucks and stuff. But late spring. Okay, this is normal time. It's on the calendar. I guess it's time for war. Okay, let's go. But but here's the the thing the, the author is trying to point out to you and I. This is the time that kings lead their army out to war. But David remained in Jerusalem. Music, if this was a movie, would kick into a minor key. You know, ah, he's in the wrong place. And we know what happens when you end up in the wrong place, right? That's where David was was at. And this whole text is significant. His, his, His men are marching out to war. Meanwhile, he's taking a nap. Verse 2. One evening, David got up from his bed. And walked around on the roof of the palace. From the roof he saw a woman bathing. The woman was very beautiful. Now the palace would have been a flat uh, roof. It would have a little parapet, a little fence around it. Uh, and sometimes we just got to get the right picture. If you've been to the White House in D.C., you're thinking if, if Obama walked out onto the um, balcony, I mean, he'd need binoculars. We need to see somebody bathing unless it's one of the Secret Service guys. I mean, it, you just it's a long distance to, to the next. It's far away. The White House is far away. But not so here. I mean, they're in a walled city. And so the buildings are pushed up. Real estate is at a premium. So buildings are pushed up. You know, also, it wasn't until, this is a side thing, but it wasn't until Harry Truman's time that actually they came up with the Secret Service. While the White House was being remodeled during Truman's time, he would actually walk by himself to work. The President of the United States. It wasn't, uh, let's, let's keep him so, so far away. Kings had a, a, a degree of, of commonality with the people. They sat at the gate. It was, it was a somewhat normal thing. So David is out on his roof. And we're going to assume that he didn't put himself into this situation intentionally. It was an ex- I mean, maybe he did, but the text doesn't say that. So there's enough other there to indict him over. Let's don't indict him on that one. So assume he didn't. But he comes across this woman bathing. Now, Parenthesis, guys, I can only speak from a guy's perspective, but it's very easy, isn't it, to come across a woman bathing in this culture, that, that type of scenario, whether it's on the remotes, whether it's looking at a magazine, whether it's just going to the peninsula, you're just going to the store, all you're trying to do is go to the store, and there's some gal dressed uh, provocatively. You didn't put yourself in that situation, and yet it's right there in front of you. Here's what David's problem was. Not that he got into that situation, but that his, his, his look lingered. His glance became a stare. And after David left physically, you know what? He played those tapes over and over, and he did not leave mentally at all. And so, so David, and continue on in, in our text, it says, David sent someone to find out about her. David keeps thinking, he's obsessing about this girl a little bit, isn't he? The man said, isn't this Bathsheba, the daughter of Iliam and the wife of Uriah the Hittite? David calls in his secret service guys and says, hey, listen, go, go to that house over there. 
find out who lives there. Find out who the gal is who lives there. And the folk figure it out, and they run her through the database, and they come back, and it looks like the, the Secret Service guy knows. The messenger knows what David's going through his mind, because the messenger points out clearly, no, 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 David, this is Bathsheba, but she's not available. She is married, a married woman. She is the wife of Uriah the Hittite. Now, this was not just anybody's wife. Uriah the Hittite was a friend of David. When David was on the run from King Saul, he's hanging out in the desert. Not real popular to be with King David at this point in history. One of the first folk to align himself with David, which was a capital offense, was Uriah the Hittite. The scripture will go on to let us know that Uriah the Hittite is in David's 30 famous fighting men. It's David's elite corps. It's one of the Navy SEALs. This guy is is a national hero. This guy stuck with David when no one else would. He fights uh, fearlessly for the kingdom, for David's name. He's a fantastic guy. We're going to find out later on. He's a very godly person as well. Even though he wasn't an Israelite, he was a Hittite. He had to make a, a shift. This, this change in religion cost him something. But, but, but David uh, realizes that this is Uriah, one of his friend's wives. So David looks at the Secret Service guys and says... Go get an escort together and go fetch Bathsheba. Tell her I want to talk to her. What's going through David's mind? What do you think? Ah, I, I, I don't know if it's immorality at this point. I mean, you, you know as well as I do, these things are quite complex, and our, our ability to deceive ourselves is incredible. And so maybe he's thinking, you know, uh, uh, my friend Uriah, is, and, this is, and his wife, is. I should check up. I'm just going to check up on her. Just make sure she's okay. I mean, you know, she's a neighbor. I'm just trying to be a good neighbor. I want to make sure that, you know, she doesn't need anything. And uh, who knows what's going through his mind. But Bathsheba comes like she had a choice, right? She really didn't have a choice. But maybe she's thinking, King David wants to talk to me. And she's right there, sitting right next to King David. Those hands, those are the hands that, that slew Goliath. And that, that mouth, they sang the songs that, that, that I have learned since the time I was a little girl, which probably wasn't too terribly long ago. And, and that's the, his, his picture is on the currency even. This is the most famous, most strong, most courageous, most godly, most mighty man in the universe right in front of her. And he's paying attention to her. You can, you can see where this, this attention might intoxicate Bathsheba. And maybe David's thinking, well, this gal is more beautiful up close than she is from a distance. And maybe he's realizing that she's, she's beautiful internally, not like my other wives. You see, she, she, she understands me, and she, she admires me, and she cares, and she's funny, and oh, she's a sharp gal. And maybe, maybe Bathsheba is comparing unconsciously David to her husband Uriah, and, and Uriah is always off fighting some battle someplace. He's just a workaholic, and he cares about his job more than he does me. It's been a long time since Uriah looked at me the way David's looking at me. That's easy to see, isn't it? Where things might move down the road. Before you know it, they're physically intimate. It's easy to see where that might happen. Well, well, how did this transpire? I mean, you hear it all the time. It was an accident. We had no clue. We were never thinking about this. Things just happened. Well, how did things just happen? Well, I think if you look at the text... We can understand how things just happen. Protect myself and protect you from this just happening. And we call this the, the wheel of destruction. 
Okay, the wheel of destruction rolls subtly. It's not a respecter of persons, and it doesn't matter who you are. You can be on this wheel. I would venture to guess that some folk in here are on this wheel even this morning. Uh, It starts off with seeing. Nothing wrong with seeing the person, is it? I'm just noticing. It's a beautiful person. Uh, Maybe they've worked with you for a while, but you just happen to notice now their their dimples and their smile and all those kind of things. Nothing wrong with that, right? But then that leads to thinking about them. And you find yourself every once in a while just thinking about them with a smile. It's just a pleasant thought. Nothing immoral. It's just a pleasant thought. It's just a nice person. And then you begin to inquire about them. I wonder about them a little bit. It's like, it's like a, a thirst or a mental quest to know them. You just want, want to know them better. That's all. Not a bad thing, right? Anything bad here? No, no. You enjoy being with them. And it's not that not being with them in a bad way. You're just, just talking with them. And they laugh and they joke. And you like their humor and you like their personality. You just enjoy being with them. And that leads to, to conversation, uh, personal conversation, where you might share some things that, you know, you don't really share with everybody. Uh, but you share some deep things. And then that would lead to physical touch. Again, nothing immoral. Just an arm around the shoulder, a gentle squeeze on the arm or a handhold. Nothing bad. And if any of us would look at the situation right here, we would say, nothing immoral is happening here. It's okay. And if you or I are in the situation, we're thinking, nothing bad is happening here. We're okay. But the wheel keeps rolling. You know, it's interesting. When I was in uh, premarital counseling, guy said a lot of stuff. I can't remember too much of any of it. But one thing he said, don't, my, don't have to ask my wife on that. She'll tell you he, yeah, he doesn't remember anything. But one thing that he said that was just so important that I, I've, I've quoted to myself a million times since then. Uh, he said, emotional adultery destroys. Mark, beware of emotional adultery. Well, the, the wheel keeps rolling. And now it's just seen. But you know what? I'm actually looking for the person. Go into the room, go into the office. I'm looking for them, and oh, I see them. Maybe I smile. Maybe we block eyes and exchange a smile. It's kind of a silent language between us. And I begin thinking about them more often. I'm thinking about them actually maybe when I'm at home and my spouse is, is being a jerk or doesn't care for me or is not looking right. I'm thinking about them. And maybe is the, the thirst to know them better is even stronger. And, and you know what? I, I really enjoy being with them. I don't just enjoy being with them. Here's the deal. I long to be with them. Matter of fact, I manipulate circumstances to be close to them. I've got to run to the copy machine and, and make a copy of this, knowing that I'm going to pass their cubicle, right, or their office. And maybe we'll talk, maybe, maybe, maybe not, but I begin to, to manipulate my circumstances to be near them. And that leads to even deeper conversation where i'm sharing stuff that you know what i'm i can't believe i'm sharing this with you i never share this no one else would understand but i feel safe with you and and the 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 physical touch maybe the embraces are lasting just a little bit longer again anything immoral happening here nothing immoral happening here but the hearts are being knit together emotional adultery is, is flying the first three were just strings and they're ropes and they're cables and you and i both know where emotional adultery is, where, where emotional intimacy is, physical intimacy is not that far behind. It's just not. That's, that's the, the wheel of destruction. Now, let me ask you, if you're a married person here this morning, this is a fair, I think it's a fair question. Are you on the wheel of destruction with anybody other than your spouse? 
Is there, is there a name, a picture that has come up? Because here's the deal. If you are on the wheel of destruction, you, you may not have hit bottom. You didn't crash yet, but you are in the process of falling. Are you on the, the wheel of destruction? Well, it's interesting as we look at this. Uh, let me give you a couple things first of all, as far as how to, to avoid the wheel of destruction. Pretty significant things. Uh, just off, off, off of my head, thinking it through, here are some uh, ideas. Number one, keep the conversation on a professional, non-vulnerable uh, level. When we become Christians, we do not become sexually neutered. And as we share, as the conversation gets deeper, it's just the way God wired us. It's the way it's supposed to be. As the conversation gets deeper, the, the closer we get physically. Therefore, keep your conversation on a professional, non-vulnerable level. And you just got to be discerning with me on this, okay? But generally speaking, don't share anything negative about your spouse or your marriage. And here's a good rule. Never share anything with somebody else. Uh, that is deeper than what you would share with your spouse. Really, really significant. Uh, number two, avoid unnecessary proximity. If there's a natural attraction, and sometimes there just is a natural attraction, don't step in front of a moving train. You avoid that as much as you can. And sometimes we can't because we're on the same team at work or we're, they're, they're a relative and we, we can't. But what you have to do at that point is find somebody that you really trust and sit down with them and share what's going on with your heart and say, would you please keep me accountable on this? They'll tell you that is a relationship you will never, ever regret. But you need to go that route. You need to avoid physical proximity. Number three, you need to draw and maintain appropriate boundaries, physical boundaries. And let me add, make them very conservative. Um, there will never, ever be any physical touch unless it's in a public place. Uh, but behind closed doors, it's just not going to happen. It's just not, it's just not going to happen. Uh, Andy Stanley, I was listening to him a while back. He said he will never drive anywhere in a car, just him and another woman. He just won't do it. Draw your physical boundaries and maintain them. Now, here's the problem. Some of us might say, well, you know what? I'm just a hugger. I mean, it's, a, it's who I am. I hug, I hug. It's what I'm supposed to be. It's my physical gift, a spiritual. It's what I'm about. It's a hugging. I'm a hugger. Couple things. Number one, everyone else is not a hugger, and and, and, and you got to keep in mind when you hug and you walk into their private space, you don't know what that other per, where that other person's been, you don't know what's happened in their past, you don't know the neediness that may be going on in their heart, and they might very very well misinterpret your hugging. So if you're a hugger, back off, just back off. Uh, number two on that, let me challenge you if you're a hugger challenge everybody, you might not always be able to best discern your motivation. You just might not. And so it's best to back off on that. Uh, number four, discipline your mind. A lot of this, of course, is going to happen as the mind gets rolling. We start becoming obsessed with another person. Philippians 4.8, excellent verse, excellent verse. And what that verse tells me is this. I can control what I think. You think, oh, I, I can't, I can't, control. it just comes into my mind, I can't, control. no, 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 the, the, God would not hold us responsible for something, command us to do something you had no power over. Now, you can't necessarily not think of any, you ever, you ever, you ever have anyone do this to you? Stop thinking about something, you ever try to, I'm not going to think about this? It doesn't work very well, does it? It just comes in your mind bigger. That's why God does not say that, he says instead, 
think about the positive. Uh, great quiet. You want, you want a new, new route for quiet time. This is it. Go Philippians 4.8. Grab yourself a commentary. Get online somewhere and unpack each of these words. Fascinating study. Fascinating study of what God would tell us to have running through our mind on a regular basis. It's when we get off of his list that our mind starts getting us in all kinds of trouble. And then number five, dwell on romance, your spouse. It's not an issue of feelings. It's an issue of discipline. I'm going to force myself to think about my spouse, to romance my spouse, and whether he or she responds or not. I'm going to pour my mind into that great principle in Scripture, Matthew 6, where your treasure is, your heart is also. I know that's the financial element, but if I'm investing my, my thoughts, my, my time on my spouse, my heart will gravitate that way as well. Well, verse 5 in our text. Bathsheba speaks for the first time, the only time in the old text. The woman conceived and sent word to David saying, only, only recorded words of Bathsheba, but what words, huh? I am pregnant oh man this is going to change everything this 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 is this puts david in a bad place i mean not just it's not just embarrassing leviticus 20 verse 10 says if a man commits adultery with another man's wife with the wife of his neighbor david's hitting also in those years both the adulterer and the adulteress must be put to death david knows the law he, he knows what the consequences are here. He can't hide this one. He's, he is in all kinds of trouble. Now, what should David have done? Well, maybe gone to his people, asked for clemency. All the, maybe he would have, probably would have got it. They loved him. But instead, and this is the wild thing, David, the mind that wrote Psalm 23, uh, started concocting a plan from hell. Our minds. We, we are capable of all kinds of stuff, aren't we? Chapter 11 we're in. Verse 6. Plan A, David comes up with. So David sent this word to Joab. Send me Uriah the Hittite. And Joab sent him to David. When Uriah came to him, David asked him how Joab was, how the soldiers were, and how the war was going. Then David said to Uriah. Well, you notice Uriah's answers to those questions are not listed? Because David really doesn't care what the answer is. It's totally irrelevant. It's a sham. It's a ruse. It doesn't matter what the answers are. It's totally irrelevant. So David said to Uriah, thank you for the report. Go down to your house and wash your feet, which is a Jewish euphemism for enjoy your wife. So Uriah left the palace and a gift from the king was sent after him. I tend to think, you know, kind of like a champagne and a couple of bottles, of, you know, a couple of glasses uh, sent after him. But here's Uriah's response. Verse 9, Uriah slept at the entrance to the palace with all his master's servants and did not go down to his house. When David was told Uriah did not go home, he asked him, Haven't you come from a distance? Why didn't you go home? What's the problem? Uriah said to David, and notice Uriah's words. First thing out of Uriah's mouth, the ark. The ark. It had been normal for them to take the ark of the covenant into battle with them. But what's inside the ark? Ten Commandments, Commandment number seven. Uriah is all over that. He's fighting for that. Meanwhile, David's back home, not just not fighting for it. He's breaking it. And first thing on Uriah's mind is God. God is up. God. And then he goes on. And he says, uh, 
Israel and Judah, they're staying in tents. And my master Joab and my Lord's men are camped in the open fields. How could I go to my house and eat and drink and lie with my wife? As surely as you live, I will not do such a thing. It would have been normal before they went into the battle for men to um, have a vow of, of sexual abstinence until they returned. It's like, guys, we're going to go into this battle. We're going to be focused and we're not thinking about anything else. Until we win, we come back, we'll, we'll pick up life again. Yeah, that's right. They would have made the vow. And he's saying, you know, David, I can't. I've made a vow. And David's trying to get him to break it, isn't he? Uh, Uriah would not do legally what David was doing criminally. So David had to come up with plan B. He said, huh, okay, it's not going as easy as I want it to go. So David said to him, verse 12, stay here one more day. And tomorrow I will send you back. So Uriah remained in Jerusalem that day and the next. At David's invitation, he ate and drank with him. And David made him drunk. We're going to get rid of those inhibitions. But in the evening, Uriah went out to sleep on his mat among his master's servants. He did not go home. Uriah was a better man drunk than David was sober. Can't do it. Can't do it. Well, this is causing David a bit of consternation, so he comes up with plan C. Verse 16. Or verse 14. It says, In the morning, David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it with Uriah. That's the ironic thing, isn't it? In it, he wrote, Put Uriah in the front line where the fighting is fiercest, then withdraw from him so he will be struck down and die. Now, Uriah carrying his own death sentence, either A, he couldn't read, which would again been very normal, or B, David knew his integrity. That once that letter had the seal on it, Uriah's not breaking that seal. Integrity's too high. So that's what happened, verse 16. While Joab had the city under siege, he put Uriah at a place where he knew the strongest defenders were. When the men of the city came out and fought against Joab, some of the men in David's army fell. Moreover, Uriah the Hittite died. When you get to the end of the chapter, we're not going to get there right now but it's as if david is saying finally we're done it's over cost me a lot more than i anticipated but finally it's done is it done chapter 12 some some huge consequences find out that that david uh, with bathsheba not only did he cause her to break her covenant with uriah which didn't Biblically, put her in a, a under the death penalty, Leviticus 2010. Uh, were there kids at home between Bathsheba and Uriah? I don't know. That's speculation, but who knows? I think he might have. Now, Bathsheba was not raped according to this text. There was a consensual element there, but they, this is interesting, guys. But God holds the man responsible. Very, very, very significant issue here. Uh, Uriah. Just trying to fight, just doing what he's supposed to be doing, honoring God, fighting for spirit. Godly guy gets murdered. Look at Joe. You think about Joab. What you military people in here? You ever think what would you, a, a general's job be? Isn't it to protect his men, to put them in the place where he will win the war? And here he's got one of his key guys, Uriah the Hittite. They've been together a long time, and he sends Uriah out, and it's something he knows is a suicide mission. He's going to be killed. So he sends him out and backs off and allows Uriah and several other guys, it says, to be murdered. What's that do to the general? What's it do to his mindset? 
the, the consequences would continue on in a, in, a, in a major way. Think of all the others that were killed here. Who they, their wives would get news this day that their husbands are not coming home. Their kids would get news this day that their dad's not coming home. And that's not it. That's not all. You find out, like I say, in the next chapter, that the baby inside Bathsheba would die because of this. You, you find out as you go down the, this text that David's oldest son, Amnon, followed in daddy's footsteps by taking somebody sexually that he wasn't supposed to have, raped his half-sister Tamar. Fascinating. David knew about this. And the text says he was enraged, but he did nothing about it. Why do you think he did nothing about it? Was not he himself feeling so guilty? He knew where he'd been. He, how could he possibly punish his boy? Now his other son, Absalom, followed in daddy's other footstep and ended up murdering Amnon. Bathsheba's grandfather, his name was Ahithophel. He used to be David's chief counselor, but Ahithophel is so, I believe, so enraged over this instance. We have to, to connect the dots in Scripture to get there, but I think you can. That he helps Absalom form a coup. Chases David out. Major civil war breaks out. Hundreds and hundreds of Israelis are killed in the warfare. It would take David two years to regain the, the, the empire back, the nation back. And what about the poor Israelite who's out in his fields just trying to, to make a living, hoping that his king would be protecting him. And meanwhile, all of this garbage is going on. Adultery destroys. But you know what? This is the biggest, biggest issue. Second uh, Samuel 12, verse 14. Nathan is talking to David, and he says, Because by doing this, you have made the enemies of the Lord show utter contempt. What, what does that mean? Maybe there were, there were nations out there beginning to fear the God of Israel. Pretty, pretty powerful God. Maybe they were beginning to wonder. Maybe they really do have the only God. And maybe we need to think about joining forces, and then this happens. What, what happens when a leading Christian celebrity falls morally? What does the media do to that person? And I'm, not, I'm not saying the media shouldn't do that to that person, but it just causes the world to laugh at Christianity. One of the key reasons why we, we're, we don't know adultery is because we bring incredible shame on the name of Christ. We destroy our testimony. Well, as we look at this, let me, let me ask you, how do we, what do we do walking away this morning? Let me give you three things real quick. If you are single, if you are single here, let me encourage you strongly to make a vow and make it again and again and again of sexual uh, chastity, uh, saving yourself for your spouse. I'm telling you what, someone challenged me to do this when I was in junior high. And so I went out and I bought a, a little locket and I knew if I ever open this locket with anybody else, I can't give it to my, my wife one day. And there were a lot of times, I'm telling you, the dating, where that locket haunted me. But my wedding day, when I got to put that around my wife's neck, Teresa's neck, it was the most wonderful thing. Make a vow. Uh, students, singles, please. You won't regret that one. If, in fact, you are... Here you are on the wheel with somebody else. You're just, you're just on the wheel. Maybe you're not way around yet, but you're, 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 you'd say, yeah, you're on the wheel. A, a little boy was at his home one day. His mom was making cookies, and so he could smell the, the chocolate chip cookies. So he ran downstairs. Mom, what you doing? 
said, well, I'm making cookies. She's putting them all in the, the cookie jar. She says, now, little, puts the lid on the jar. She said, now, little Johnny, don't touch those cookies. No, I won't, Mom. So she goes in the living room, sits down, and she hears the chair being pushed up to the cookie jar. And she hears the, jar, the top of the jar coming off. She says, now, Johnny, she screams from the other room, are you touching those cookies? He said, no, Mom. Now, my hand is in the jar, but I am resisting temptation. Some of us, maybe your hand is in the jar, and you just need to get it out. You just need to get it out because adultery destroys. My assumption is, too, that there are folk who have... uh, been down this road, and again, it's a painful conversation. Let me, two things. Several years later, th- what did we, we talk about? A thousand years later, King David's great-great-grandson, named by Jesus, son of God, uh, would be sent to this world, as Dave mentioned this morning, would die freely for King David's sin with Bathsheba. And he died for my sin, and he died for yours as well. And maybe, maybe you have never come to him in need spiritually and saying, God, would you forgive me? He's into forgiveness. That's what he does. Every single person in this room needs it. But he gives it. And maybe this is your morning to come to him. And perhaps, again, you have come to him. Uh, you, you know him, but it's still painful. Let me encourage you to continue to bring that at at his feet, to to step back and watch what he might be able to do. And though the memory may never leave, uh, what God might be able to do in your life, in in ability to minister to others, he he can make gold out of that. So would you take just a second to pray with me? Whatever situation you're in, if you're single... Would you make that vow to him again if you need to, maybe the first time? If you're on that wheel with somebody you shouldn't be on that wheel with, would you commit to him right now to take whatever steps you need to take to get off? Because adultery destroys. And again, if you are here this morning and you've never come to Jesus, but you know the pain of past mistakes and sins... You can bring those to him now. Lord, I know that a thousand years again after David, you would speak on this very command. And you would let us know that if you've even thought lustfully in your heart, you're under the same condemnation of breaking number seven. Every one of us stands before you condemned in and of ourselves and in need Lord, of Jesus' death and resurrection. Thank you, God, for the new life. Thank you for forgiveness. Amazes me, God, but thank you for that. And for those in here who might still yet need to claim that, oh, God, by your spirit, would you work in their heart? And, God, for those who've been down that road, but but hell would bring this to their mind and cripple them spiritually, but they know you, by your spirit, would you give them freedom and release? Would they continually look to the cross And know that that all these terrible things, such were them, but they're not anymore. They're a new creature. 
We commit to you, God, this day, and between now and the time we see you face to face, would we please, God, would you help me, would you help your, your children to obey, number seven, in order that this world might know that you're real and that you're powerful. For it's in the name of Jesus that we pray. Amen. Amen. You're dismissed. Have a good rest of the day.